Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. My guest today is Brian Merchant, and I always get the book title wrong. It's a uh, blood. I don't mean with your book title, Brian. I get I start interviewing oh, no. my guest, and then I'm like, wait, I've read the book. It's literally sitting here, but I can't see the title because my notebook is over. It bl- blood in the machine. That's is right. That the yeah, title? you got it. Yeah. All right. Well, this book is fantastic. It is a a strange work of deliberately anachronistic history which in my opinion all history is anachronistic so just embracing it is a is a good thing about the luddites and the the similarities that the luddites were were facing the situation they were facing 200 years ago and the situation we face right now so before we get into the 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 weirdness and the anachronism and talk about jobs and ai and factory destruction just tell us uh, who, who you are and how you came to write this book yeah, uh, I am Brian Merchant, and I uh, write the tech column for the LA Times as my day job. Um, and this is my second book. The first one is kind of a, I like to think of it as kind of a people's history of the iPhone, um, looking at uh, everything that goes into making those ubiquitous devices. Um, yeah, and for this one, it it kind of came about pretty uh, circuitously. I, I was originally interested in the Luddites um, in sort of the myth-busting kind of way, right? Like I, it was the mid-aughts and I was working for Vice and I, you know, we were already, um, you know, a little kind of, I guess, punkish in the, in the way that we covered, but not like deeply super sort of, you know, critical of tech in like any sort of like Marxist sense or anything that, but we just, we were always, we were always kind of into, you know, picking fights and muckracking and muckraking and, and that kind of thing. So when I stumbled upon the Luddites, uh, my, my wife, my partner, who's, who's an academic, um, had some papers, uh, about the Luddites that I, I, I just kind of started reading and it sort of disabused me of this myth that the Luddites were were dummies, were sort of these nincompoops who didn't understand technology. And in fact, they were completely uh, sort of morally justified in having all these views that they had. They had a very salient critique of technology. Their campaign was very tactical, very smart. Um, and their, their, their criticism, it turns out, sort of you know, lingers on and, and resonates in a way that I thought was useful uh, as we enter this, quote, new age of of AI and automation. And the thing about a new age, as I'm sure your listeners are probably aware, is just that somebody decided to call it that. Now it's a new age of automation or AI or whatever, because that's what, you know, the pundits and the entrepreneurial class and all those have decided to call it. But being that as it may, it's useful to have this battery of uh, of critique ready to sort of to challenge it and to try to uh, claw back some um, some ownership and control over technology. Yeah, so you've already touched on two of the things that are most important to me. First, the reason why we do this work, this historical work, and this is why I said it's all history is anachronistic, uh, is is because we need a. A, a toolkit, a usable past is the phrase to deal with what is is happening today. So if you're writing history, it's anachronistic. You're writing history from today for people to read today. I don't think it's even possible to do history without, like literally impossible to do history without that lens. And so the pretense that people can do history that way is a, that, that is a pretense. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I appreciate that because it's kind of funny. It's one thing that people like to ding me for this book is that, you know, I, it was a conscious choice and a stylistic choice that I made to sort of, well, I'm going to talk about the Luddites and their struggle and the, uh, the, the big sort of, uh, um, you know, early conglomerates uh, that, that, that are wielding capital in this way that we would recognize today as a tech type. So I use this, I use the same vernacular um, and some people, people don't like that. And, and I, you know, it was something more than any other stylistic choice is probably the thing I thought about the most. But I just I, I, I thought that it would be more contextualizing, more useful, more sort of it, it would it would drive the story home more. I think 
and the fact that you know i believe we really do have you know a lot in common with these uh with the the with the luddites and the people who would become luddites and the people who had solidarity with the luddites in that they're facing a similar set of circumstances and as you say so much of you know history is uh you know is 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 uh, is, is un- unknowable, I guess, in, in a lot of terms, or is, uh, you know, up, is, it depends on who's giving the history. The Luddites, for 200 years, we know the history of the Luddites from the people who crushed them. That's yeah. the story that's handed down, right? Like, that's why we think of them as backwards dummies, because as soon as they started getting some traction, as soon as they became popular, as soon as they became the next Robin Hoods, which they were, then the crown had to pull the levers of power and the people had to say, they, they had to say, well, well, they don't know what they're doing. They're all backwards. They're going to send Britain back into the Stone Age or the equivalent of what, whatever that critique was. And they stamped them with that from the beginning. And it's, it's just how, you know, it, how power works. And that's the story that that we hear about so yes i made a few you know choices in telling this story i didn't ever deviate from the facts as i saw them as recorded from mm-hmm. the archives but i, I use this language that i felt sort of uh it, it stood at least in my view to sort of improve the resonance to make it read more like something that uh people would would, would recognize and feel in their gut yeah no i think it worked for me although i should say i'm I'm not a historian, like capital H historian, so I can't I can't give you the historian's approval. I'm an English professor. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just had this conversation with the eminent uh, Oxford historian John Morrill, and the thing is, you, the, the the crucial thing there that you said that is important to me is that you know you're telling the story in this sort of anachronistic way because it has resonances, but of course you're also telling the story as truly as you can. There is a nihilistic version of anachronistic history yeah. that's just like, fuck, fuck it, who cares what happened? I'm just going to tell the story I want to tell. That is bullshit. I just want to point out that the yeah. other one of just just the facts, ma'am, that's also <laughs> bullshit. Yeah. All history is caught between these two tensions. And yeah, I read the reviews, Brian, where they <laughs> they dinged you for auto- like for using the word automation it's like you also pointed out, and sorry, this is a big spoiler for the book of a factoid, that the word automaton is goddamn 3,000 years old. I read that in this book, Brian, and I was just like, everything I have understood about humanity and AI and machinery is wrong because Homer was talking about automatons, which means Homer was talking about automation. Like, come on, people, give up the word. If automaton is in (laughs) the Odyssey, then we've been dealing with automation since far before automation existed. It seems to be like deep in the human mindset i'm talking in weird ways that i don't normally do brian because your your book got me thinking yeah no that's exactly right yeah it it, it, this concept is i think i you know it it predates jesus i say at one point because it did (laughs) it does this idea you know and from the earliest days it's like it's aspirational right because you it's before things like uh capitalism where it's just like well what if we had these tools that could just kind of do things for us as you know wouldn't that be great like yeah and you know yeah if you could in in the homer's talking about you know uh like little a blacksmith god that has automated little serving droids basically that bring the gods drinks um they also had they also discussed some like early automated soldiers and, and things like that, you know, things that would, you know, that would legitimately sort of, uh, you know, relieve drudgery or do a job that they didn't want to do, you know, again, without outside the context of, you know, one person benefiting at the expense of others from that arrangement, you know, like, yeah, that looks pretty good. If I don't have to, you know, serve my guest drinks myself, if I have a robot to do it, then that's pretty cool. Um, and, and, and another scholar that I talked to, uh, Kanta Dihal, who has studied the history of artificial intelligence, and she points out that it was pretty much about until the Luddite's time that uh that we that humanity sort of according to like sort of the record the written record of what was around uh in in terms of automation was pretty positive it was all there wasn't this fear of uh, of automation that so much of sort of the punditry and the cultural products that we know today are uh are, are concerned with it was all there was very it was a very positive relationship or aspirational relationship to to automation and that changes um when the industrial revolution gains steam and it becomes clear that what's really going to happen is a handful of people are going to use 
automation as a tool to benefit themselves at the expense of an extant working uh, working class. Uh, and that's when the tide changes. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I just, something I meant to say earlier and forgot, I need to throw it out there. If you've ever, yeah. you know, complained about anachronism, but you use the term robber barons when you're talking about Carnegie and Rockefeller, well, robber baron, that's actually a different thing. Robber baron is a guy who has a castle near a road. So like we, <laughs> when, we, we can't escape an anachronism. We think we're being period accurate when we say anachron, when we say robber baron about Rockefeller, but that was an anachronism then. And they knew it. They yeah. were drawing a comparison between what was happening in industrial society and these things that have been happening in feudal societies. And now we don't even see the anachronism anymore because that's just how history accretes. And yes. I don't think it's wrong to to be part of that accretion. In fact, I think it's right to be a part of that accretion. Yeah. And honestly, that was what... <laughs> the anarchy in the in my own house anarchy in the back room yeah. man that's 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 uh, how this podcast rolls go for it but yeah so the the that was that was the goal that's what ultimately tipped me in the favor of have, of taking this approach in that a tech titan and what we understand a tech titan to be today somebody like jeff bezos or elon musk uh somebody uh who you know he sort of gets credited with you know making these groundbreaking innovations and inventing things and well that it's not really the case we know that now they you know they use some capital <laughs> to buy a company they find new ways to sort of exploit labor and to drive them harder and to squeeze more productivity out of workers they're not they're, they're you know this that mold that exact mold I, I have a whole chapter called the first tech titans that's about the guy who kind of minted this standard and the reason i use this term tech titan is because richard arkwright uh the guy who patented um and claimed to invent the water frame uh first of all did not it turns out that you know just like a lot of our tech titans today he lifted the the technology from an early partner that he threw under the bus big shades of steve jobs and steve wozniak there he kind of took over the company and the profit streams and the and the credit um and then even at the time they were the his admirers were saying his biggest innovation was not with the technology but the fact that he had this willingness to 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 bring workers to heal in service of the mm. new technologies just like somebody like jeff bezos is you know like amazon's like website that you click and you get a product like you know, that's not that innovative. There were plenty of websites uh, throughout the 90s and the aughts. But when you have a warehouse that says, OK, like we're going to get you everybody here to put the item in the cart as fast as a robot could, organizing labor to that degree and making it feel like you're getting something timely when you click that button all on the back of human labor. Uh, and, and when you can make that feel as machinic as possible, that's that's what you're feeling with, with Jeff Bezos. That's the that's what he did more than anything else. He mobilized labor using technology to surveil and 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 sort of gamify uh, labor regimes in innovative ways. Arkwright, 200 years ago, uh, more than 200 years ago, pioneered this tactic of sort of just like yeah, having having a factory type situation where people sit in rows in window in windowless rooms in at machines, you know, working them day in day out under an overseer, and people fucking hated that at the time. Like they revolted for a reason because if this was the future, then they saw that that sucked, right? Like before, you're working in your shop. With your family around you, you're singing songs. You can take a break and walk through your garden. Uh, the Luddites were not just mad about lost wages and uh, and, and and sort of the, that new machinery was arising that could do their jobs. That was part of it. But what they were really in their gut anxious and upset about was this sort of shape of the future, sitting in the factory, at standing at their command, as they called it. They hated to stand at their command. This was, mm. you know, it's, it's the imposition of the factory system for the first time, really, like en masse. So they were fighting that that formulation as much as they were fighting, uh, you know, the, the, the machinery. And, you know, at the time, it was pretty stark. Like, everybody hated it. People really did have to be sort of 
you know beaten into in, in, into in, into submitting to this to this mode of work or generational that's why they shipped in children and child laborers who were either vulnerable or didn't know any different or were from a poor family that needed the money um, and that's what they wanted they wanted these pliable people who you know didn't know uh, that things could be better. Um, and, and, and that's when, you know, the factory system really took off when it was fully staffed. Arkwright, who I'd been yammering about, his factory was filled with two thirds operated by children, some as young as six years old. Machines whirring around, clanking around, arms getting caught in them, people getting smashed. It was really, really nasty. So his innovation wasn't, oh, what, you know, I've got this technology that's so that I've, that I fine tuned in my lab. No, it's like getting people to work those machines and, and, and sort of breaking their will basically. And that's the language that even his advocates used at the time. Yeah. I'm, I've been really struck by recent research that suggests that the sort of like 19th century factory that looks to us like this new thing is actually an extension of these two other things that go associated with colonialism, plantation slavery, and then merchant ships, which you know, like stand at your command. This idea that there was some place you had to be, for the for the system to work and there was someone else's whose job it was to watch and make sure you were there and and you know physically beat you if you weren't there that seems to me to have started in the 15th and 16th centuries the difference is it was far away it was on the periphery and as i was reading your book and thinking about this i was thinking about one of cory doctorow's claims which i find very convincing which is when they roll out these awful technologies they start with children, prisoners, the poor, and then they work their way up. And so he's thinking about, you know, keystroke monitoring. But you can think of the factory yeah. as the exact same thing. It was okay to have factory, I mean, plantations, but we could think of them as factories if it was enslaved Africans. And it's one step or maybe three steps forward to have it be you know, the adult men, the the yeomen who are the, you know, the real British, if if the if my British listeners can accept the, the real American right. phrase, but for the, the real English, I should say. So you start with children and then you work your way up and, and, and it's it's this it's the same process. At least I, I thought so. I was struck by that again. Yeah, no, I mean I think that's I think that's certainly the case. And that's, you know, there was I think there was like there there was a spectrum. There were people who were just you know outraged uh, at the fact that like children were being forced to work in this. Even at the time, like there was there was there was outrage and people felt felt sorry for them. But uh, you know, just as powerfully, a lot of that resistance they the 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 men and the skilled workers quote skilled workers mm -hmm. found the idea of them doing this this sort of labor in the mold of the the, the children were being forced to work uh, degrading and emasculating and that also sort of led led a lot of the revolt and it's it is interesting you mentioned the, uh, the plantation slavery uh, because an interesting and horrific thing happened with that too and that's that it almost so that this that sort of mode of sort of mass organized you know labor and that, that we're talking about does start you know on, on the ships and in, in the plantation fields um but the the logic of the factory and what the te the tech titans do and what richard uh, arkwright did in mobilizing and making more efficient in in the first uh in in the first sort of organization of uh, of slavery um, I might get this backwards, but you you would you would have a, a gang system, right, where people had their tasks and it was horrible, and you would have an overseer that was liable to 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 whip you if you were uh, not productive enough. But you still had at least this modicum of how you were doing your job. Mm -hmm you know in in part because of like of their their export is flowing to, to 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 britain and then they have all this new raw material and they and then you have these men like arkwright who are organizing labor just so they then that the the new mode then flows back mm -hmm, to, yeah. to the plantation and reorganizes uh slavery into the task system which is much more regimented much more factory like in the in the in those sense that we consider it and it becomes even more brutal like even 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 more awful uh and and then you have some you know luddite like resist i do a chapter in, in the book that's a that looks at um 
an enslaved worker, uh, Charles Ball, who, you know, is working at the same time that the Luddite uprising is happening in 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 England and and a lot of these these same motivations this desire to to automate to increase production and it has all this these horrific unintended consequences um and it catches you know workers even more vulnerable even more suffering uh undergoing more suffering than 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 the impoverished cloth workers of england so it's all tied up into this 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 uh you know transatlantic system um that that you know is just sort of this puzzle box of horrors and it is governed by this new possibility and this new idea that you can automate late that you can automate uh you know a a system to increase productivity um and people are thinking and arguing that you know you can get machines to do all this stuff and in every case it's it's not you know eli whitney the inventor of the cotton gin once remarked he's like you know this will solve slavery probably because if we can automate you know the production of this part of the cotton process we can get the you know the of course what does it do it just makes the demand for raw cotton soar through the roof and it got it you know some historians say it expands it it extends the lifeline of slavery for decades as a result of this it was kind of while it looked like there might have been a a possibility the abolitionists could have uh you know, helped, helped stamp it out, you know, we'll never know now, but it just like, now there's this new thundering rationale for it, uh, for more, more slavery. Uh, and, and it's just this, it, it's really just horrific to think about that, you know, we still have guys today thinking, oh, this is going to be great. If we just sort of get the human out of the equation, I can automate this process. I can do it with AI. I can do it with robotics. I can do it with, and with such, such minuscule amount of thought given to like how it might actually affect uh, a real world system that they just don't care. And they haven't cared for 200 years. Uh, and part of the project of this book is trying to get, um, you know, the more people to care and them, you know, people to recognize that, that these people don't care and, and try to build some power to, to confront that. Yeah. That's a, that's a really important point you made about the factory ideas getting re-imported back into the colonial system because it is true when you read the accounts of the overseers and the shipmasters 300 and 400 years ago they're quite happy to utterly dehumanize the sailors and the slaves but they don't actually feel like they have that much control over their labor they're always afraid it's going to slip out of their hands because some of these systems of surveillance and control haven't been developed yet and and in that respect the great innovation of the the true factory, whoever you call them in the 19th century is not the like, is not the the steam stuff and the water stuff and the technology, but it is the way that the people can be forced to work with machines like machines. That is that is the difference. And you're absolutely right. The the people on the ships and the enslaved Africans on the plantation, they are not treated like humans, but in some core way, they're not treated like machines yet either. And that is a jump, I think, in the 19th century. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I, I do think so. And that's when at least you see the melding of language. There's like really some interesting texts from some of the first, I, I think I call them like business futurists. That's kind of, <laughs> uh, 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 Andrew Err, who is actually the guy that... Um, that uh, that that Marx uh, got a lot of his ideas about about automation and uh, you know ex- accelerating accelerating production from, um, but he really this 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 guy was like really just all in for for the factory and he was um, you know kind of he was I guess he was like kind of an early consultant he was like a chemist by trade but he wrote all these books about how great the factory was and starting in the early eighteen hundreds he's promising that you know just around the corner we're gonna see this the factory become an automaton that just like works without people involved. But for right now, you know, you need the people in there sort of work. So you're, you're seeing like the, the actual melding of the language of these ideas. And, you know, it's of course, 200 years later, there's, there's no such thing as a factory that requires no human input or human <laughs> intervention. Uh, you know, there's, you still need the workers on the assembly line or doing maintenance or doing all of these things invisible though they may be. But this, this idea sort of like, you know, grafts on uh, to the organization of the factory. So you have like factory and technology becoming kind of 
synonymous with industrial progress at, at that point. And that's why the Luddites, for daring to speak up against it, for daring to denounce that, you know, then have to be situated as being anti-progress because they're anti this whole form. Uh, and 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 if if they had won, we might have seen any number of interesting reconfigurations of work and technology and, you know, more democratic, you know, uh, ways of developing that technology, more say over how, but they didn't. And instead, we get this like very binary, very bleak sort of uh, vision of what industrial progress, what progress itself actually is. Yeah, so now we just have to, you've, you've hinted at this a few times, but I don't know if the listener knows necessarily we have to do this what it means to be a luddite because i'm quite happy to be considered uh, a luddite in that i just got rid of my smartphone and i have all sorts of in these sort of like thorovian emersonian ways i'm i'm anti-technology or the latest technology i'm growing more anti-technology as i age i just turned 40 but being anti-technology which is what we use the word luddite to mean now that's a slur on the luddites they were not anti-technology they wanted precisely as you just said a different and obviously from where you and i are sitting a better configuration of society so just take take it away on that yeah absolutely so uh, so imagine uh, for for the time at the you know in in their day the technology uh that is uh, you know most front of mind for most of these folks is either the hand loom or the stocking frame or uh or, or the implements that they're using in in their trade and it is technology that's the most cutting technology cutting edge technology of, of the day and they're fluent in it they're skilled in it they are technicians some of them are what we would call technologists today right some of them are always experimenting with their machines improving it um, meddling with it, experimenting with it, building new machinery. Um, but they don't get remembered as the great inventors of history because, you know, they weren't doing it to, you know, to try to maximize uh, profit in a giant factory, you know, at the at the expense of someone someone else. They were, you know, they were technologists, though. And that is really important to know. So number one, they were technologists. So being technicians and technology, they, they were better versed in sort of what was happening, what the entrepreneurs, what the what the elites wanted to do with this technology, the new and sort of, uh, you know, automation machinery that, that that was that was emerging. Some of it was new. Some of it was just being put into new uses. Again, to our earlier point, it's not the technology that matters so much. It's the context. So some of this stuff had been around for 20 years. Uh, by the time that uh, it, it starts uh, really appealing to, to elites to say, well, what if we just got a hundred of them, put them all in a room, hired children to run them, I bet we could charge a lot less uh, for, for cloth than, you know, uh, than that, that, that knitting concern or that weaving concern down the street that's been operating under the same parameters for, you know, 200 years. Um, so, it was against it was it was this mobilization of technology that the cloth workers recognized and 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 protested so starting around the very sort of turn of the century in the early 1800s um, it becomes pretty clear you know this is about you know 10 15 years after um, wealth of nations has has come out and sort of caught on among a bunch of the sort of the the elites in England at the time and among industrialists who are kind of using this as a, as a blueprint or, or sort of a justification for start starting to divide labor and create factories again, which is very unpopular at the time. Um, so they see this coming factorization that employs this new sort of automation and they see that it's just decreasing their wages. They're taking a hit because they can, the, the new factory owners can mass produce stuff. They can't, they can lower their, their stuff is much poorer quality uh, so they're charging less. Now they have to compete on price. It's driving wages down. It's driving prices down. And the workers are are beginning, in some cases, to go hungry. So they are fighting this at, at, the, at a, a number of levels, most notably at Parliament. They're trying to petition, say, hey, these 
new technology, these, these new entrepreneurs, these new tech Titan people, again, they don't use those words. I do. Uh, they, they're, they're not paying attention to the laws on the books that say we have, uh, we need to have apprentices in this trade and we have to have this certain kind of cloth count and they're getting away with all this stuff. They're, they're ruining the reputation of our trade. They're, they're putting us out of work. They're immiserating us. And, you know, parliament, which is in the throes, as uh, as the historian Eric Hobsbawm says, was uh, in its most ferociously conservative period. So they just say they say, no, any sort of any sort of, uh, you know, subsistence for you guys, any sort of, uh, you know, minimum wage, which is what a lot of the weavers wanted, any sort of, you know, welfare benefit would, is out of the question because that'll distort the market. So they basically say. You're on your own. In 1809, Parliament tears up all the regulations altogether and fully leaves sort of the cloth workers to their fate. Remember, there's hundreds of thousands of cloth workers. This is like, in hindsight, this is kind of an insane move to say hundreds of thousands of cloth workers, the largest industrial working base of England at the time, the largest occupation aside from uh, agrarian workers uh we're just going to kind of leave them to the wolves basically and so they can't organize because there's laws on the books called the combination acts that uh that ban um, unionization and now they've been sort of rebuffed and and thrown out by by parliament after being investigated for uh, for union activities and i'll mention so when when an economic headwinds go the wrong way in in 1810 and 1811 there's a bad harvest there is a, there are trade sanctions that dry up a lot of their markets uh shit just hits the fan basically and they as a tactic of last last resort they become luddites and they embark on the campaign of what they're most famous for now and that's machine breaking um and again it's tactical they send letters to entrepreneurs saying, we know you've got a hundred of these machines. If you don't take them down, you're going to get a visit from Ned Ludd's army. Um, if he takes them down, then fine. They don't show up. If he leaves them up, then they show up in a you know militarily organized uh, sort of uh, platoon and they hold the overseer up at gunpoint. They go in and they smash the automating machinery and just the automating machinery. And they leave with a warning. If you bring the machines back, we'll come back and do the whole place. So that's that begins sort of Luddism in earnest in, in 1811. Um, and it uh, becomes just this sort of thunderous, popular, you know, folk heroic campaign. Yeah, one of the things I was struck by in your description of their raids, and they're very similar to descriptions I've read and heard, especially from the history podcaster Mike Duncan of the Boston Tea Party and the other events in America in the late 18th century, you you could call this, I would call this direct action and link it up with an anarchist tradition. And they tend to be incredibly disciplined. The right wing description of this is like unruly mob, but actually the discipline and coordination and organization of this quote, unruly mob far exceeds anything that you would see from say the soldiers who might end up shooting at them when they are not supposed to be firing on them. The discipline is actually in the hand of the Luddites. They haven't. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, so, you know, part of the law. So the, the, exactly. The Luddites are, are extremely disciplined and they know because from the beginning, they're 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 smart about this. Um, and there's a reason they're so popular. It's because this sort of the, their their campaign has this symbolic dimension where they're destroying this implement of inequality, this device that's being used to transfer wealth from one party, the working class to the rich. And by smashing it, they're you know, they're sending this message that we're not going to take it. We're not going to stand by and, and watch these, these machines or these men use machines to, to, to impoverish us. So it just generates this thunderous kind of support. And they are, you know, to the extent where like they're at one point, uh, you know, after they, they start doing this campaign, which is two things. It is, as you said, very sort of disciplined and it is also, uh, decentralized though. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) 
it's, yeah, that's, it, the, that's, it's that is, that's the anarchist dream, right? Is disciplined but decentralized. Yeah, and we could talk a little bit more about about how they pulled that off, but it really in it it really goes with uh it, it, it speaks to solidarity really. And and Gavin Mueller, um, who's also written written a great book about Luddites called Breaking Things at Work, um, really drives this <laughs> uh, point home in his book. And that's just that the Luddites had incredible solidarity. I mean, these are these are these are men and sometimes women who grew up in a tight knit community who had the same set of experiences and concerns and uh, and and often sort of the same economic pressures and you could you know you know back in the reform movement when there were sort of the the jacobin clubs coming to coming to the uk like you could infiltrate those meetings with a spy right because they're often people who like you know have read tom Paine and they want to sort of start a revolution and it's people from all different walks you cannot do that with a luddite cell right there's these people that have been working together since they were 12 years old apprenticing together in the same shop they know everybody from the town if, if a stranger kind of shows up at a pub at a luddite planning meeting you're just like who is this guy <laughs> you know so it's when as soon as the first wave of luddism proved so successful in nottingham and you do see some real successes you see factory owners lowering their prices to what they were before they used the automating machinery you see sort of people giving up the machines say waving the white flag saying like look i only did this because the joneses down the street did this and i don't i don't want to mess with the trade i don't want to mess with your livelihood i you know this is this is cool by me to like go back to the old ways so you had a lot of people do that and 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 they won back some some pay and concessions and 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 protections um and then since you have this very emulatable form where you're sending a letter you're invoking ned ludd who is ned ludd is a, a robin hood like figure that they probably made up uh, an apprentice who smashed his owner's frame after he had him whipped for not being productive enough um ned ludd their mascot then he flees into sherwood forest legend goes and you know <laughs> he starts raising an army but you could emulate that so from so in, in um in lancashire and the west riding of york and in in huddersfield and leeds and manchester all these different places you can have luddite cells and they're built from uh from the local communities there's no central organizing committee they just follow this tactic and because it's proven itself to be so effective uh so you have both of those things sort of working working in tandem um and again for a while it is it's really successful the state has to has to crush it of course and so to your point about the the Luddites being disciplined versus the state not. The state just basically throws weapons, throws bodies, throws money at, at trying to crush the issue. They send more troops to occupy the industrial districts of England uh, than were fighting Napoleon at the time. It's the largest domestic occupation in English history to try to crush these cloth workers. Um, again, this is the same government that had 10 years to try to address this in some sort of, you know, good faith democratic way. Maybe, maybe that minimum wage could have, you know, helped people out enough to where they didn't feel like that to smash machines. Maybe there was another option, but by instead deciding to pour all their resources into just crushing it, that's again, it's another choice uh, in shaping the, 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 the sort of the pathway that industrialization, that the development of technology is, is going to take. And that's, we're going to side with the people who have the money, who have the resources <laughs> to deploy it, and we're going to use force to do it. And they stationed all these troops all over the industrial districts, all over places like Manchester and, and Leeds. And it was unruly. There was a law that said if you had a pub, you had to take the king's men and, and, and feed them and house them. So you had all across England uh, soldiers just sort of uh, in, in barracks, living in pubs at the expense of driving these poor you know, pub owners uh, out of out of house and home, and it was you know they were unruly. They were they would you know commit sexual assaults. They would you know they were they were uh, it was it, they they were the ones that were completely undisciplined, and their only job was if they got the call to try to go crush the luddites, and they were incredibly bad at it uh, because they really didn't you know care that much one way or the other. All these soldiers who are sort of lounging around, um, uh, so it's really really pretty 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 dark but again it's important to know yeah. that that's how 
that's how this this issue, the machinery question quote they call it, gets resolved. Some people say like, oh, well, the Luddites were wrong. Like they lost. <laughs> people wanted all these technologies and the products that they produced. So the market really won out. And that's not the case at all. The state intervened to such a thunderous extent that they that, that they crushed the opposing viewpoint with with gunfire by hanging them with nooses uh, and 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 with this ex- incredible show of force and they forged the pathway of technological development they decided the state decided not not any consumer not the market yeah i mean the the irony is almost infinite so if the justification the like smithian justification is like we need to leave the market alone because it's more efficient and these horrible, violent monsters are attacking it. The solution is for the state to spend who knows how much money to do violence in an intervention that I can't, I cannot fathom the irony. And then we are told precisely as you say, and like, that's just how it had to be. You can't fight progress. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is. It is so perverse. And so it's almost like, I, I, I want someone to do like a, you know, like a, like an Ezra Klein style wonk blog, like, look at like, <laughs> well, the state would have had to spend this much to garrison this troop here <laughs> vis-a-vis the amount it would have cost to pay, a, you know, a minimum wage. Like, yeah. because yeah, it is. It's absolutely just a decision where you want to, you know, make your, your state expenditures. And, and, and they decided that way. Look, I've covered this on this podcast ton, tons of times. Doing things the right way is almost certainly going to be cheaper. It's just going to end up with a certain amount of money with the wrong people. (laughs) And this whole Adam Smith capitalism bullshit is just, I am sorry, an excuse to maintain the power and the status quo. And everyone who's listening to this podcast obviously is not surprised at all to hear me espousing (laughs) these views, but it's just, it's just so obvious. They don't, the crazy thing is they don't even have the Ezra Klein style numbers on their side. It's just might makes right. And then the numbers are window dressing. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a really, really interesting period because you see this taking shape in fits and starts. And some of the elites are like kind of trying it on. There are like some converts and they have an early convert to to sort of the Smithian uh, view in Pitt the Younger, who's like part of like the new, to- it's, it's like really funny, like the new Tories. He's like, he's like younger. He's like, he's conservative, but cool. He's almost like this weird Paul Ryan type figure. Yeah. Um, who's like, he is like, kind of like the, so like all the, he's not like the old, like landed gentry who are like kind of old fusty. He's all about, you know, the market, which, you know, again, even among the Tories at the time, there are some who are still, much more wedded to the ideas of pastoralism and maintaining sort of, you know, mercantilism and, and then the monopolies. So it, there, there's, it's this interesting period of, of, of two decades or so where it's not exactly clear where it's going to break. And to your point, like to the extent that working people knew about Adam Smith and they, they, hated him like they hated him like you he there's 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 one part in the book where one of the sort of the half luddite half reformer uh crusaders Gravener henson really fascinating guy a guy that the english historian e.p thompson um uh who wrote the great great book the making of the english working class sort of argues is one of like the three great unsung figures in shaping sort of uh, working class consciousness um, well, he's a Luddite, and he's also trying to get the crown to to reform, to uh, to try to you know to try to find a, a more peaceful solution. He's trying to repeal those combination acts to allow unionization and that that kind of thing. But during the period that the book's taking place, he's really you know fighting for you know basic protections, things like minimum wage and and and, and base base wages and and some some support for uh, you know, some some sort of welfare welfare support, some ban on on sort of the more uh, vampiric practices of the time, which was like paying people in goods or in truck instead of paying people wages. You know, people just like give them stuff that then either they could sell or whatever, which is, you know, you can't eat, you can't buy food with just stuff all the time. So um, they were trying to ban that. And he, you know, when he's writing back, he's saying, he's like, I, we're sympathetic. I'm getting sympathetic ears, um, except for Dr. A's disciples. He always calls him Dr. <laughs> A, it's not Dr. Adam Smith. Um, and be, but because at that point, they weren't the most voluminous force in, in parliament, but they were powerful. 
Uh, Spencer Percival, who is the uh, prime minister while this is going on, is a disciple of Pitt the Younger's. So you could see they're still trying to figure out how to wield the ideology to do exactly what you're saying, to sort of protect the elites, to sort of ha make a new justification for, uh, you know, ignoring the poor and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, doubling down on their own interests. Um, and this is really one of those moments where you see that taking shape, just as coincidentally, you see industrial capitalism taking shape. Yeah, that actually brings me to the the last thing as we're heading towards the end of this conversation that I wanted to make sure I discussed is very early in the book, you're talking about, I mean, I marked it because it leaped out to me, something like this is the first time, you know, that technology or automation can be, you know, taking away people's jobs. And I, I would put it slightly differently, which is to say, I actually date the invention of, so the, the, the 20 years before this, when sort of these factories are happening, but they're not being automated in the same way, I would actually call like the invention of the of the job in the sense that like you go and clock in and your time is somebody else's. It's not at home. It's not an apprenticeship model with the expectation that you will be the master in the future, all this stuff. It's this this factory model, which of course, you know, if you're if you work in an office job, you have a job. You're expected to go to a place and be somewhere in a certain time and there's someone watching you, all that stuff. That was not particularly common until this period. And I would argue it's once you invent the job that you get the, the overseer who is very different from a master in the old apprenticeship model that you get people sort of rubbing their fingers together and thinking, I can get rid of some of these people <laughs> and saving money. A master with journeymen and apprentices is thinking, look, they're just like me. We're all in this together. Someday they're going to inherit. They're going to be partners. Or, or perhaps they're just doing some weaving at home. It's a totally different thing. There's no reason for a master with a bunch of apprentices to imagine automation. Yeah. It's jobs, this job, by which I mean this model of like a centralized boss and hierarchy with a bunch of workers who are surveilled and their time is owned by the company and they're doing tasks. Yeah. Once you get jobs, the allure of automation is just incalculable. And that's why I think there's, you know, there's an anti-job vibe out there, which I'm certainly part of. It doesn't mean we're <laughs> against, it doesn't mean we're against work, Yeah, but this centralized system, if you pick that way of organizing society, all of these ills follow. They picked it, and then we got this, and then the the wrong guys won. So I just want to throw that out there to see, yeah. see what you thought. No, I agree. I, I agree. Like, I mean, I guess you could try to, you know, that we you could you could have a, a long conversation and a, probably an interesting one about like you know when you know we was something that we would define as a sort of a modern day job begins or like what 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 qualities or characteristics that has. But I think. A, a job, something that, as you say, that you that you like, you, where you're selling your labor to somebody else and they're paying you a wage. Um, yeah, again, that's that's what that this this notion, even if it wasn't so uh, well delineated or uh, apparent what was going to happen in the future, but that's why it was just so obnoxious to them, or so toxic to them, or so hated because they sensed it. That whole yeah. that that plugs right into the standing uh, at their command. So once maybe that's when you you know that form of a job begins is when you have to stand at somebody's command. And you know, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right, keep going. Yeah, no, and I think, but I, I and and I have made this point before, and I think it's an like this when I was writing this book, what, the, the pandemic was was going on, and then after the, the after the lockdown eased up, you know, we have this right now. We're still in the midst of this thing. Well, people don't want to go back to work uh, in the <laughs> office, right? People, well, why? Why don't people want to go back to work for all of the same reasons that the Luddites were sensing back then? They don't want to go somewhere where they're going to have a boss looking over their shoulder, telling them what to do. It's not a pleasant way to live a life. It's not, it's, it, you're having your liberty infringed upon and however, you know, small a way, it's just undeniable. Your, your time is somebody else's. It's not your own. You're losing your autonomy. Your, you know, dignity is at stake because somebody else can tell you what to do and you don't really have much recourse unless you're going to quit. So imagine, imagine never 
like we don't you know those of us who are like kind of protesting going back to it we've lived that we grew up that way it's an inculcated yeah. into us and now we're like ah, actually we've tasted what it's like to kind of <laughs> be able to do our work at home and now we don't want to imagine having never oh like God. sacrificed that imagine like and imagine just like your job is how you want it to be you have one task and that is to weave this piece of cloth how, however long it takes you that's when you will get paid you'll you'll you sell it to the to the merchant and sure you have disagreements or whatever but it's governed by this sense of of, of fair contract of fair prices everybody just kind of nobody wants to screw anybody else over you know of course you're gonna have a few unscrupulous people but this is just it's a it's it's a community more or less working in symbiosis and nobody's just trying to overtly exploit somebody else and and that is changing when you see this overseer system and you're looking up at that building it has three stories you know that there are people just sitting in a row at a clanking whirring machine where there's no windows and somebody's just going to tell you when you can and cannot go to the bathroom just like that i just imagine the re the revulsion and the repulsion that you know uh somebody with 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 pride and dignity and a sense of of, of freedom of, uh, about their lives being told that that's what their future is. And that's what all your son's future is yeah. going to be too. And you're, you know, that's, it's, uh, it's, it's easy for me to understand on that level then. And maybe it's useful for people to think about that sort of groundswell of, of disgust. And it wasn't felt just by cloth workers. That was, you had, you know, shoemakers, hat makers, coal, where everybody else was joining the Luddites in the streets. And it was puzzling to the authorities at the time. They're like, why? Like <laughs> the steel, the steel worker, they're going to benefit from all these machines and stuff. It's like, that's not the point. The point is that this is just a giant exploitation machine and it is just getting started and they have a chance to stop it. And that's why the Luddites are so popular. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, the way the way you described production in this pre-factory, pre-automation model, if you described it that if you described wanting a world like that today, they would call you some terrible name like Luddite or anarchist or something. <laughs> but oh my God, that's how it was. Yeah. That's how it was. Choices were made to get this other way. And now now we run, you know, we run our schools this way with the single overseer and all the people chained to their command. That's how we do it. Yeah, we got a taste of it. Well, some of us got a taste of it not being that way during the pandemic. Essential workers were chained even harder there to their command than ever before yeah. from these two ends. We're, we're, we're seeing something. We're seeing unrest. It's certainly not looking anything like the the depth of the Luddite movement in part because we have we have a lot more work to do to imagine this different world, which is really just the pre-1800 world. And and this book is 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 great on that. And it's a thrilling read. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Ah, thanks so much for having me. This was great. All right. I just need to say before I let you go, anything else you want to say? Uh you can have the last word. <laughs> um well, I would just uh, just quickly to add on to that last point you made, and again, notice that that the the distribution of work and uh, and how the community was oriented, it really has very little to do with the technology itself. We could have a model that is not unlike that, or arranged however else we wanted with the most cutting edge technologies in the world. <laughs> the technology is immaterial. Yeah. We do not have to stop developing technologies that people find interesting. It's just right now with the current economic regime we have, when something like AI is built, we can pre predict pretty well to the purpose that it's going to be used. So just something to keep in mind. It shouldn't be you know, a limiting factor. Don't let anybody tell you that you need to be anti-technology to explore alternative arrangements like this. Um, and in fact, you know, the Luddites are the best example of that. They were technologists themselves and, 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 they, and they fought for fought for an alternative themselves awesome thank you so much brian the book is blood in the machine thank you <laughs>